Hello and welcome back to another episode of How To with the Communications Clinic. Today we're going to discuss how to build a brand. We'll chat about what makes great brand marketing, the importance of content, storytelling in the marketing process and lots more. I'm delighted to be joined by Margaret Malloy, Chief Marketing Officer at Siegel & Gale, the global branding firm behind the Simple is Smart ethos. Margaret is originally from Offaly, now based in New York City. She also hosts the podcast How CMOs Commit, and she's the founder of Wearing Irish, a passion project to tell the untold story of Irish fashion design. Margaret, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. It's lovely to, to welcome you on to How To. Hello, Louise. Delighted to be on. Thank you for the invitation. So there's so much I want to speak to you about, Margaret. But first of all, your role is very interesting. And, you know, I'm particularly interested in the steps you took to arrive at this position. So you might tell me a little bit about your your journey in marketing and indeed the role you have now as CMO at Siegel & Gale. Thank you, Louise, for that very generous question. Yes, Siegel & Gale is one of the world's leading brand strategy, design and experience firms. We're essentially in the business of helping our clients build great brands. And they typically call us at inflection points when there's a merger or an acquisition and they need to stand up a new company, a new CEO or CMO arrives and their ambition for the brand is greater than its current state. Or frankly, when they want to better understand their customer experience and how the brand can help. So that's who we are at Siegel & Gale. We're part of the Omnicom Global uh, Holding Company. Personally, I've been in marketing for over two decades, and I characterize my career as doing tours of duty in different marketing functions from public relations to customer marketing, product marketing, sales, essentially all the different functions now culminating in leading the global marketing function for Siegel and Gale. And if somebody was interested or had the aspiration to become a CMO, what's the key advice you would give? What skills do you need to have to become a successful CMO? Firstly, Louise, I would say that this is an extraordinarily exciting time to be in the field of marketing, particularly because marketing today is being recognized as one of the top driving forces of a business. And that's changed since I entered the profession. The advice I would give is essentially around balancing three vectors. And because I'm in brand, Louise, I'm going to give you three C's. So the first one is curiosity. You must be curious about marketing, but also about the business and about how people behave, customer behavior, and what motivates that behavior. The most essential skill of a marketer. The second one is competence. You need to bring value to your employer. So having depth in a particular dimension of marketing I call that staying ahead of your craft. And the third C is confidence. Be proud of your knowledge. Be prepared to raise your hand for stretch assignments. Show passion. And the opportunity for career-oriented marketers is to essentially balance those three Cs, if you will. What I found is that the balance is really important. You need all of the three because if you have 
confidence, without the competence, it rings hollow. If you have competence without curiosity, you run the risk of obsolescence or irrelevance. And then confidence without curiosity is terribly unattractive. So managing those three C's, I think, is the task at hand to grow as a marketer and a tremendously exciting one at that. And do you think some of those skills are inherent or can they be learned? I believe it's both. I think you must have the curiosity to want to learn and to continue to stay ahead of the craft. So complacency is the enemy, another C, if you will, in in that regard. I think confidence, too, comes with competence. So as you learn, you have to apply that knowledge. So I believe they are learned. Like any profession, certain skills people have are innate and work to their advantage. One might even argue that the skills that I've listed probably apply to any individual who's growing their career, not limited to marketing. But the most important, if you ask me to rank them, Louise, is curiosity. Curiosity. Okay. Well, I'm very curious about, in your opinion, what great marketing is, what great brand marketing is. What makes that? Perhaps I begin by defining brand. And I I would characterize myself as a simplifier. So I will give you a very simple answer. Brand is a promise kept. People not in marketing sometimes find that a little confusing. So I talk in terms of what's the job of a brand to do? And when you think about it, what sets a branded offering away from a commodity is essentially meaning. Brand imbues meaning beyond the functional elements of an offering. If that were not so, we would all be driving generic cars and no one would be buying brand name clothing or other experiences. So it's that emotional connection. Now, in terms of the job to be done, brand has a big job to do. And that's essentially how I evaluate the efficacy of marketing. If you look around the classic model of the funnel, from grabbing attention to helping you make a decision to driving loyalty, those are essentially the jobs marketing has to do. So in order for a brand to be effective, it must serve as a navigational device, meaning you spot it on the supermarket shelf and you know what you're getting. It must be memorable. And it's a shorthand for the quality of experience you're going to expect from that offering. Often, Louise, it has to act as a tiebreaker when you're deciding among different purchase alternatives in business to business, in services, even in our personal lives as consumers. It's also an expression of ourselves and the community we want to be associated with. So brand has a lot of work to do. And how I think about measuring the efficacy of that work mathematically is essentially a brand is the summation of a customer's experience at every touch point from the marketing communications to the usage of the product to the branding to every touch point of experience so that's how you think about it and when it's done well there are tremendous benefits to branded offerings externally as we talked about it drives recognition It differentiates a product, 
it attracts new customers and drives loyalty, and in many cases, confers an organization with the ability to charge a price premium. Now, internally, there are tremendous benefits to an organization that executes brand marketing well. Most importantly, clarity of purpose, knowing what business you're in and what is the experience you want to drive for your customers. It's a great filter for decision-making if you have a clear purpose and really drives efficiencies. So lots of benefits to having a great brand, but lots of jobs that a brand needs to do. And if you were to begin to create a brand, so say, for example, you have a product or a service, how do you turn that into a brand then, a recognizable brand that people will feel comfortable and go for? So there are many facets to that, Louise. I would begin by saying brands help people distill information, simplify choices and make decisions. So with that understanding as a backdrop, I would say that the biggest opportunity for companies now who are trying to build a brand is to emphasize customer experience. Back in the day, people thought of brand essentially in a very static way as words and pictures, the logo, the strap line. Today, as I said earlier, brand is the summation of all the touch points. So being really considerate of that definition and frankly, being very expansive in thinking about brand. Another arguably shift I would offer for people to consider is moving your mindset away from thinking of people as buyers of your product or service and thinking of them as users. And if you make that shift, it has profound implications on your marketing budget, on your activity and what you value. So for example, companies who think about brands and buyers spend all their budget on promotion, spend a lot of their attention around winning awards for their ads at events. They, they stop the marketing effort when the cash register rings, if you will. Contrast that with leaders who are thinking about building their brand as a user experience. What do they do differently? Well, fundamentally, they worry less about the promotion and more about what is the user experience when they buy the product. How are they using the product? They create content and other activity to make sure the user is getting the most out of their product. Look, for example, at Sephora and the level of effort they're putting in to making sure we use the makeup we buy in those um, experiences. The other difference in shift is vitally important is companies who focus on users really look at how customers talk to each other about the product. So in this sort of review culture, they're more interested in a Yelp review than they are an award for an ad campaign, for example. So that notion of focusing on users, moving away from promotion to thinking about advocacy, moving away from worrying about what they're saying to, consus to customers, rather focusing on what customers are saying to each other. Those are really important opportunities, I would suggest, for new brands to make a difference. 
That's very interesting. And then what what are the key tools then which you use to help your clients go beyond that focus on just promotion, but advocacy and communication and content? What are the key tools that people are using now, companies are using? At Siegel & Gale, we're a full service branding firm. So we bring to bear a variety of capabilities. The first is brand strategy. And that often manifests itself in helping a company articulate what is its brand purpose? What's its reason for being beyond the financial metrics? Second tool we bring to bear is the capability around gathering a robust fact base, specifically understanding the customer journey at each stage of that journey What is their experience with your brand and what can you do better? How are you setting yourself apart? How do you engage? So it's a heavy, essentially, research component. Another tool that's powerful is simplification. We have an expertise around both plain language and customer experience. And the notion of how do you reduce friction in the experience from the time a customer, or as I prefer to say, people, um, research a product to purchase the product or service to consuming it? How do you simplify that process? Another tool we bring to bear and lean heavily on is design. How can you use design in all its artifacts from iconography to digital experience to really enhance the brand experience for people. So those are among the top tools. A final one I should mention that people underappreciate is naming. So that is a popular capability at our firm because how you name your products and how you handle the product architecture is really important. I often say to people, your name is the first word in your story. So getting your name right, be it for the company, entity, or be it for the product, is not to be underestimated. So you've said so much there that I want to um, dissect a little further, but let's talk about the story then. Um, can you tell me about the importance of storytelling in marketing? Louise, I believe storytelling is absolutely critical. We spoke earlier about the difference between a commodity and a branded product and suggested that one of the major differences is brands have meaning. Well, stories imbue that meaning. Stories create myths around products. They build culture internally. They achieve memorability, which we talked about as one of the important jobs to be done by a brand. And they create community. And so much of what we believe is important about brands is the company we keep. So storytelling is a vital component. And I would perhaps be a little cuter and say the world now is moving from the traditional metaphor of storytelling, where it's leaning back and you're told, to story building where the community is part of the story and the brand puts out a component, but others retell that story, be it on social media or in their own word of mouth interactions with other customers. So that minor shift of storytelling is vitally important, but it's not broadcast. 
It's a communal experience, which really gets back to the old notion of storytelling at its very essence. Can you give me an example of of a brand that is doing that, telling the story in that fashion as opposed to broadcasting a ready-made story? There are a variety of brands who do it very well. I, I look at the fashion sector and beauty, actually. So, so those are two sectors to look at because I think they have a very progressive orientation around bringing in the users. And also they have a tough business because so much of the purchases in fashion and beauty are arguably discretionary purchases. You don't need that other lipstick. So creating stories, creating emotional connections, that's a good sector to look at because they have a very hard job to do. So rather than name brands, I think it can be instructive to look at sectors. Mm -hmm. So like beauty, for example, would be somebody moving on to tell their following about the wonderful lipstick and why they like this. So it's, it's continuing the story after the purchase. That's exactly right. And creating what I would characterize as a gravitational pull. We see it through influencer marketing and all of the activity there on social media. And I think beauty has to be ahead of the game, as we mentioned, because it's a very competitive game. But if you as a student of marketing and branding look at that sector, you can glean best practices that can be applied to other sectors as well. Mm -hmm. And then so that influencer side of the continuation of storytelling is obviously so strong now, particularly in those industries you've mentioned, fashion and beauty. But let's go back to the, the creator of the brand and the company. For them, how important is content marketing in creating their brand? Content marketing is vitally important also. And sometimes it's a sibling of storytelling. Stories are one dimension, if you will, of content. And why do I believe it's important? It's because content builds awareness back to the job to be done. It confers authority. And this is particularly true in the business-to-business sector. If we move away from consumer for a moment and look at high-tech, B2B marketing, case studies, thought leadership, those are aspects of content that essentially confer expert status on the publisher of the content. And also another important reason why content's important in that sector is it gives salespeople a reason to reach out to customers. So say, for example, a technology company produces a compelling report. Well, therefore, a salesperson can reach out to a prospective client to share that thought leadership. So for those reasons, content's important. It also reinforces community. And for me, community is a really important dimension of brand because when you purchase a product or service, whether it's B2B or B2C, you're essentially buying into being part of that tribe and content can reinforce it. It's important, though, to emphasize that it can't be self-promotional. Great content has to be useful. It has to tell memorable stories and position a company as an expert all with a view to essentially being relevant. And one of the misunderstandings about content, Louise, is within organizations, people spend a lot of time and effort in creating compelling content. And then they run out of energy. 
and they don't spend the same amount of time in considering the distribution of the content. And with so much clutter and so much content right now, my advice to brands is don't lose your enthusiasm for content when the piece is created. The game has just begun because you now need to expend effort in distributing it through different channels, etc. Okay, and it's interesting you mentioned the influencer industry and, you know, a lot of people who might be listening who are in this category, they're creating brands too. So all of that is applicable to, you know, not just products and services, but people who are now creating a brand of themselves. Louise, that's a really interesting observation. And I think you're right. And frankly, I would go a step further and say it's beyond influencers. All of us are a brand whether we like it or not. Because what, you know, when you think about it at a very basic level, what's a brand? I suggested earlier it was a promise kept. A corollary of that is it's your reputation. Or as I like to say to people when they talk to me about personal branding, it's what people say about you when you leave the room. So whether you're intentional about building it or not, we all have a brand. I just think it's very interesting because we work with clients all the time in improving their communications. And like you've just said, we we would always encourage memorable stories, effective stories, relevant stories. So I think there are a lot of lessons there that just go across industries um, and, and can really affect the personal as well. Um, one of the other things I'd like to uh, discuss that you mentioned is simplicity. And you often speak about the importance of simplicity in terms of marketing. It's something you're quite passionate about. Can you tell me why simplicity is so important in successful marketing? Absolutely. I believe simplicity is often misunderstood and underappreciated. When I think about simplicity, I think about the very many dimensions of it. And many people think of simplicity as just clarity. And they take a very reductive approach to it and therefore underappreciated. So I would offer five dimensions, Louise. The first is ease of understanding. Second, transparency. Third, consistency. Fourth, a fresh approach. And fifth, utility or being useful. So when you're challenging yourself to simplify and to ask, am I delivering a simple experience for my customer? Those are the dimensions I would offer that you evaluate your experience to assess whether or not you're simplifying. One of the gorgeous insights that I've emerged with over my career is the notion that the genius of simplifiers is knowing what to strip away from an experience, design, or language, and what to leave behind to achieve what you mentioned earlier, Louise, which is that relevance. And I believe as marketers, our jobs, I often joke and say, my job, yes, my title is chief marketing officer, but my job is chief simplicity officer, because I have to look at what's happening in the market and distill down what matters and prioritize. And that skill set is really vital for marketers and really powerful to build a great customer experience. And when simplicity is done well, 
It brings confidence instead of confusion and drives customer loyalty. I've seen this time and time again. At Siegel and Gale, we do a study and we rank brands based on how consumers assess how simple their communications and experiences are with that brand. And the most fascinating learnings from that include the business benefits of simplifying. Customers tell us they're willing to pay a premium for brands that provide simpler experiences. It drives loyalty also. We're told that people are more likely to recommend a brand if the experience is simple. And fascinatingly enough, if you look at the brands that have performed well in our index, they outperform the stock market uh, indices as well, which is to say Wall Street and capital markets also reward simplicity. So really great opportunity for brand marketers to improve customer experience is to focus on simplicity. I, I should addend it also to say, Louise, that in this era that we're in right now with the pandemic and the challenges that has wrought, I would suggest that it's the pandemic has imposed a cognitive tax on all of us. So the brands who lift that tax or essentially simplify will be rewarded. We're all harried. We all want to reduce friction. We all want that transparency and ease. I would have always said we want it, but it's now even more important than ever before. Some businesses have changed and will probably never be the same again, you know, because of our changed habits and a realization that we probably don't need to do things the way we did. So how would you help a client across that hurdle? Many of our clients are asking our help in assessing the changes in customer habits and behavior. And the question for many companies that's unresolved is, which habits are going to stick or which will evaporate when hopefully the world turns to its next phase and we have the vaccines in the arms? And what will be the hybridization? Which habits stay? Which combinations of habits change? And which new habits will emerge post-pandemic? And what are the implications of changing customer behavior on their desires, their wants from a product and service portfolio perspective, and also how customers are served and what their expectations are of a brand. So it's very case dependent, but to the extent that we're helping customers, it's around really understanding the customer behavior, their, their customers' behavior. And that is from an external perspective. From an internal perspective, as companies deal with working from home and some hybrid model, the opportunity is to understand what are their company rituals that need to change, what rituals will return, and what rituals, frankly, are sunset that are no longer relevant in a new environment. And the backbone of all of this work is research, getting a good fact base to make those determinations and we spend a lot of effort with our clients around the world in helping them understand changing behavior. And tell me, you mentioned, you know, we talked about simplicity. I, I would imagine one thing that unsettles the simplicity 
for the consumer is a rebrand. Could you tell me a little bit about a rebrand and how to do that successfully without losing your loyal customer? Yes, so rebranding is one of the main reasons clients call us at Siegel and Gale. So maybe if I speak to a few components, the first is what are the drivers of a rebrand? Often it's new ownership structure. So there's a spin-off or an acquisition that requires this essentially setting up a new company or standing up a new entity. Another driver can be expansion. A company expands its product portfolio and is known for something and wants to be known for more. For example, Dunkin' Donuts rebranding to Dunkin' because they wanted to go beyond coffee. Third is a new executive. New CMO or CEO arrives, and as I said in the beginning, their ambition for the brand exceeds their current reality. For example, way back in 1997, when Steve Jobs came back to Apple, he completely rebranded that company with a much more minimalistic and simplistic and simple, if you will, uh, identity. Another reason for a rebrand is when there's a compromised reputation. Uh, Lance Armstrong, that Armstrong Foundation, when there were some challenges there, they rebranded to create a new entity. And the fifth driver of a rebrand is repositioning. When a company essentially is living in a sea of sameness and wants to stand out from the crowd. So those are the reasons. The benefits, therefore, include raising awareness of the company or the offering, reestablishing relevance, realigning with stakeholders on the promise, redefining the business model even, and revitalizing brand as this remarkable intangible assets. And one of the things that I ask companies when they talk to me about the merits of rebranding the provocation I have is, is it a sign of change or merely a change of sign? Because entities like Siegel and Gale can help create new positioning, new logos, new brand identity, even new brand experiences. But if the company is just looking to create that change of sign, it's not enough. It has to be signaling a change in the customer experience. What is going to be different in terms of our interaction with your company? So I mentioned some of the drivers earlier and some of the benefits, and that all comes together in what is the follow-through. Now, look, there are various elements to it, Louise. Often, there's I talked about there's a visual identity, new logos, new color palettes, etc., there's the verbal identity. Those are the words you use to describe. There's the purpose and positioning. How has your company positioning changed and has your purpose changed as a result of rebranding? And then the activation. Not dissimilar to our conversation about content, a lot of companies spend so much time, effort, resource, and budget on the obvious manifestations, the words and the pictures, they run out of energy and passion when it comes to the activation. So when you're about to embark on a rebrand, really be thoughtful about the fact that this is quite a significant strategic undertaking and it has implications in terms of doing it well. 
And Margaret, in terms of staying ahead then, once the rebrand is done, once you have solidified that reputation and loyal customer base, how do you stay ahead then? I mean, in, in, in the world we live in, things change so fast. If you look at social media, before we know it, there's another platform and we're already behind the curve. How do you advise your customers or your clients rather to stay ahead in this game? It's a very difficult question, Louise. And I think when I think about it from a meta level, I think it comes back actually to your quite intelligent question at the beginning, which is what are the characteristics of great marketers? Curiosity. The most important way for any brand or any leader to stay ahead is to be curious. Now, having said that, there are processes that companies can implement and programs to help them stay ahead. One is really thinking about your mindset, focusing on the customer experience and being constantly vigilant around understanding how that experience has changed and is evolving across every stage in the funnel. One of my favorite examples is Amazon. And Amazon is famous for in every meeting, leaving an empty chair. And that chair is to represent the customer. And that to me is a very beautiful metaphor of never losing sight of customer experience. Second recommendation is to simplify and focus on key signature moments. Many organizations make the mistake of trying to do too much at once, but focusing on the key points of a journey and what will have the most significant impact on your customer. The third recommendation is be agile. Be prepared to pivot, to stay ahead. Don't be so consumed by what's worked in the past to be oblivious to relevance today. And, you know, we only need to look, for example, at retail, for examples there. If you look at the physical retail category, even before COVID, how that category had been challenged so much presents a real need to focus on how are you agile so you're not losing focus on how customers are changing their demands. One of my favorite tips to companies is something that you quite insightfully suggested in the beginning, which is look outside your own sector. Some sectors are further ahead on different aspects of brand and don't limit your perspective to what's happening in your industry. The banking industry should look at the beauty industry to understand changing customer behavior because people are people. They don't change fundamentally when they move across category. In fact, looking at someone like Amazon, that expectation of service that Amazon is creating for us, that's actually getting transferred to other categories. So the biggest curiosity activator, in my view, is looking outside your category. And after the the very trying period that we've all had, particularly for businesses, how do you think marketing will change in the near future? What an appropriate word, Louise, to say it's trying. I would agree with you. And certainly from a global perspective, we've really experienced three pandemics. We've had the health crisis, economic crisis, and racial inequity. And all three of these, in my mind, mean that in 2021, 
we're really in a transition year, a reset year for brands and for economies. I'm very optimistic. There was a recent cover of The Economist that had the roaring 20s. I believe that when we come out of this, there has been so much pent-up demand that we will see a revitalization in almost every industry, albeit changed, but desire to spend time with people, desire to visit with our careers again, desire to travel and make purchases. So I'm quite optimistic. I do see also a growth in mergers and acquisitions. Certain industries will just reshuffle as some players survive and others are assumed. I also think that companies, in terms of change, will have a renewed emphasis on focusing on employees. And that has been really propelled by the pandemic. Companies are recognizing that keeping employees engaged is critical to the delivery of a great experience for customers. So I'm optimistic. I think one of the biggest changes will be this notion of stakeholder capitalism. In the past, there was a lot of emphasis, and this is at the most strategic level, on the business side, on shareholder value and return to shareholders. Companies are now putting more emphasis on the planet, employees, and the community. So they have a larger set of metrics to look at. Brands are getting permission to behave and contribute to society beyond just the provision of product and services. And we saw this with brands stepping up to create ventilators or variety of services to people in support of the challenges people were addressing in the COVID era. So new permissions and new responsibilities for brands to live their purposes. And sustainability. That is going to be a really important driver of success going forward. We see it even in the capital markets now where we see a growth in ESG investing. So taken together, all of these changes or changes in emphasis mean company is going to be evaluated on much more than ever before. And business is going to get complicated, but it's also going to have more impact. And that's exciting. We're even seeing in all the literature how trust is being transferred to companies over other institutions. Trust in government is down. Trust in a lot of institutions is diminished. And that's an opportunity for businesses to step up. But in stepping up, they have a lot to do around the planet, around being inclusive, as well as delivering delightful customer experiences to their customers. I think it's so heartening to hear optimism when we look to the future like that, you know, and I appreciate that. Um, Before I let you go, I know you're very, very passionate about championing Irish brands um, and you're the founder of Wearing Irish. So who are the Irish brands that are most savvy in their approach to marketing, Margaret? I admire a great variety of Irish brands. Two stand out to me. The first is IDA Ireland the agency responsible for foreign direct investment and economic development in Ireland. I believe they have done a wonderful job over the years in promoting the country of Ireland as a destination for investment. 
The second agency I emphasize is Tourism Ireland or Falter Ireland, who have also done tremendous storytelling around the gorgeous experiences that people have when they pay a trip to Ireland. And those two brands are very interesting to me because they speak to very different dimensions of the country of Ireland, the economic and commercial component, as well as the experiential and hospitality component. And what's interesting about both of those brands is they speak to how people can maintain a duality in their minds. They can see a country at once as being innovative and progressive and still welcoming and providing great experience. And that's very exciting to see Ireland being presented by two wonderful brands in such remarkable ways. Why I applaud the marketing of IDA Ireland and Tourism Ireland is they've stayed relevant. If you look at Tourism Ireland's greening campaign, for example, where they've had collaborations with wonderful monuments around the world, that's really smart marketing because it speaks to collaboration, it speaks to community, it speaks to influence and engagement. So kudos to both of those agencies for their storytelling, their relevance and their diligence. Margaret, thank you so much. Your insights and advice really have been so incredibly interesting and informative. So thank you so much for your time. It was really lovely to have you on the podcast. Louise, it's my pleasure. All the best to your listeners and feel free to connect with me at any time. Thanks to Margaret for that fantastic insight and thanks to you for listening. If you want to follow Margaret, she's on LinkedIn and at Margaret Malloy on Twitter. And we'll be back with another how-to very soon.